Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoors and Podcast. We're laughing because we've just screwed up the intro big time, and uh, this is take two. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're talking about the great state of Arkansas today with a Mr. Chuck Young. Chuck, how are you pretty doing? Good. I'm fine. How are y'all? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I, I'm doing. I'm, hey, I'm, you know, Jake, Jake is here too. I, I'm doing pretty good too after seeing Andrew screw up because uh, he gave me. Man, I, I had that coming. Yeah, he gave me hell yesterday when we were doing a Southern Waters podcast, and I had. I had mistakenly, we have, of course, Chuck, we have a fishing show as well, and some of the listeners may not know that, but it's called Southern right. Waters, and I was doing the interview with a, uh, a Bass Pro angler, a Bass Elite Pro angler, with my, and my uncle, and I had done the introduction, I was like, welcome back everybody to uh, another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman, and they looked at me, and I was like, crap, wrong podcast, I was like, let, me, let me start over again, it's Southern Waters, but uh, yeah. Good times here, but no, Chuck, super excited to have you on the podcast. You were recommended to us by a listener of named Clint, which of course Clint knows knows all about this. As in, uh, I've shot him some messages saying we are moving forward with this interview and very very excited. So, Clint, we highly appreciate you putting us in touch uh, with you, Chuck, because Yo, this thanks, Clint. 
Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely Clint. Because you, you're a wealth of knowledge, Chuck. We've talked a little bit the last day or so uh, about this episode and the topics. And you're coming in from, of course, the great state of Arkansas, who we've done some awesome interviews uh, from in, in the past with some other guests. But you're coming from a region of the state that we really haven't covered in detail at all up to this point, which is kind of crazy because you know we're 380 episodes in on, on this you know, this show and you're coming from the area of the Washtenaw Mountains, uh, which is kind of that middle part of the state that runs all the way over to Oklahoma, uh, which yes, is an interesting area because we've covered the Ozarks. We've covered, you know, the kind of White River area in eastern Arkansas, but we haven't covered your area of the state. And you're coming in, again, highly regarded and having, you know, very consistent success taking some very, very nice deer in that area. But Chuck, to kind of do a little introduction yourself, uh, can you? Give us a little background because you have a very interesting story how you got into hunting, uh, especially like the yeah. industry that you're in and, and how this all kind of started. I got into it late. I didn't get to I didn't get to start hunting till I was 35 years of age. My dad had a uh, rare disease called Duchenne's dystrophy. And so I kind of grew up being my dad's arms and legs. And uh, so I didn't really get to do much of any sports or hunting or fishing or anything at a young age. And so uh, when I got to be about 34, a couple of the guys, I'm a musician and have been my whole life. And a couple of guys that I worked with uh, were, were actually bow hunters and they were pretty passionate. They, they, as a matter of fact, hunted around Mountain Magazine. I've heard you speak of that before up in the Ozarks. And they took me on a trip up there with them to just, hang out at deer camp for a few days. And I had such fun with them that I decided that I wanted to get into hunting and came back and immediately bought a bow and just started teaching myself and just kind of went with it from there, you know? And it kind of go from there. You're now, what is your age now? And kind of like that experience, because you started at 35, which is getting kind of 63 years of age now. Still climbing the mountains. <laughs> and that, that, that's what we're going to get to. 63 years old, in great shape, still getting after it in the mountains, which I'm excited for. That's one of the reasons why you know, I'm trying to get in some shape, too, that's which we talked about earlier. a lot of why I'm still in good shape is the mountains. Yeah, well, that, that's a good point because that's the one one characteristic I've noticed with a lot of these guys that are hunting, whether in the Appalachian Mountains, Ozark Mountains, and now, of course, the Washtos, is the guys that are very serious about this take their health very seriously as well because you can't – like, yeah, I could probably climb one of those mountains, but I'm going to be so f- mentally, physically drained uh, after doing, you know, you know, 500 to 1,000 foot of elevation change. Um, you know, it's... You it, might be selling yourself short. <laughs> yep, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I, I hunted last year, but thank God the area that we hunted, it, it was interesting because it's different from the washouts, which we're going to talk a little bit more detail, especially. Yeah, I'm an old man. Access. If I can do it, you can handle it. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. But I'll tell you what, I got, well, I, I did have a, a buck 30 on you. Uh, so <laughs> now, 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 now it's about a buck 15 or so. So, you know, you know, hey, we're getting there. We're, son. We're, we're working on it. We're working we're on getting it. There. But anyways. So the, yeah, I got a late start because of all that. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I want to get over, how did you start, taking your experience from, from where I guess you kind of hunted, which you had told me previously was like Southern Arkansas to kind of moving into the mountains and then started diving in and having a passion for hunting, you know, the Washtenaw mountains. Well, uh, I, I, I immediately, as soon as I started hunting, uh, started hunting public land immediately. And at the time I was living in Camden in South Arkansas and really the closest land to me was Poison Springs wildlife management area. So I started doing a lot of bow hunting there uh learning you know and uh 
I mean, learning everything, you know, and pretty much uh, self-taught for the most part, but read as many books and magazine articles as I could to try and, you know, gain at a faster speed what, you know, I guess turn the learning curve more in my direction, try and try and speed up the process of learning because I had lost all those years that all these other guys that had been hunting ever since they were young, you know, I, I didn't have that kind of experience. So I felt like I had to make up for time, you know, because I, I knew that right off the bat that I didn't want to just take any animal that I, I wanted to be like my friends, you know, and be able to take good quality bucks, you know? So I kind of had that as a, a goal when I started, of course, it took me years to really get successful at that, like everybody else, but I paid my dues and I learned, you know, learned from my mistakes. So what was it in that whole learning process? When did you kind of turn that corner and what clicked where you started having success? Um, I read one book. Uh, I believe the author is David Morris about hunting trophy whitetails. It's a pretty in-depth book. And once I read that book, it really turned things around for me. It explained a lot a lot of things that I didn't quite understand and a lot of what to look for when I was scouting, you know, and how to make sense of what I was finding. It uh, broke down the various stages, you know, of the pre-rut and the rut. And um, considering when the book was written, I think it was written in the 1980s. It was pretty in-depth for its time. I'm sure there's a lot of things now that it probably been disproven that are in that book, you know, new, newer, you know, newer, newer things are learned from, from high tech surveillance all the time now, you know? So I'm sure the book's probably outdated now, but it really turned the corner for me. Anyway, I would suggest it as a read to anybody. Well, let's kind of get over and start talking about your journey, hunting the Washtaws and what the learning curve was when you go from South Arkansas, kind of flatland to the mountains. When you first got started up there, you know, what were some of those big struggles and, and how long did it kind of take you to start getting your footing on understanding how you needed to hunt that area versus what you were doing in the south, you know, southern part of Arkansas? Well, unfortunately, that book didn't really cover all of that. Uh, I had to start asking other people what they were doing, basically. And the best advice I ever got from anybody was to hunt high in the morning and hunt low in the evening. You know, and and uh, and and they started telling me about thermal thermals, and I started doing a little more research about thermals, and and uh, felt like there was a lot of validity to what they were telling me. And so, uh, I had already gotten decent with a compass on flat ground, and and started uh, ordering topo quadrangle maps from the office in Little Rock. That's before you could get anything really online, you know, and spent a lot of money. Buying a lot of topo maps of the state. And uh, when I started out, I wasn't just doing the mountains. I was actually traveling all over the state to WMAs all over the place and National Wildlife Refuges trying to trying to do it in too many places at too short of a period of time. And so uh, uh, I, I after after doing that for a few years, I realized that I, I'd be better off, you know, scouting this area that I live in, the mountains more thoroughly and just concentrating on trying to be a good mountain hunter. And uh, the topo maps really helped me a lot with that, you know, reading a lot of 
articles in magazines and stuff and people always bringing up things like benches and saddles and, you know, uh, points or secondary ridges or finger ridges, whatever you want to call them. You know, I, I started learning about land formations and started learning that most of the better hunters from what I had read and heard from other hunters in the area by speaking to them, didn't really hunt sign in the mountains as much as they hunted topographic features. And once I started doing that, I started becoming a lot more successful very rapidly with getting mature bucks. And uh, to me, my definition of a mature buck is a buck that's above age three and a half, you know, that's, you know, a 130 to 140 inch range at a minimum, anything more than that is a blessing, you know? Oh yeah. So you got me so excited. Andrew over here, the second you started talking about, you know, when you started fine tuning it and focusing on hunting terrain features, topographical features, you started having more success. I looked over at Andrew and he had the biggest grin on, on his mm, face. I like this subject. <laughs> yeah. I like this subject. Absolutely. <laughs> so we, we got to talk a little bit more about this. You know, did you, did you have somebody kind of teach you how to learn to read a topo map? Did you do it on your own? And no, I did it on my own. I did it on my own. I just ordered one, started milling over it, and uh, it, just, it just it made sense to me right off the bat, you know. But the more that I looked at them, the quicker I could decipher them. You know, they, they made sense to me immediately. But now, you know, over the years, I've studied them so much. It's just it's like looking at my hand now. I look at one immediately, and bing, things just immediately jump out off of the map to me immediately, you know. And I've got Clint reading a lot of topo maps now. I just turned him onto that about a year ago, and he's uh he's kind of my my deer hunting buddy, and uh, he's getting real serious with maps now, and he's starting to become the same way to where he picks out a lot of features quickly that stand out to him. It's not that hard to learn, really. Yeah, Chuck, would you say to be a successful mountain hunter? you have to be kind of a student of the maps and really understand how to read maps effectively to be a successful mountain hunter? I think you can be successful without doing the maps, but boy, it's going to cost you a whole lot of boot leather and a whole lot of lessons learned that don't turn out the way that you want them to. (laughs) You're going to waste a lot of time. Uh, If if you do learn to read the maps, it's going to save you a lot of time. It's going to speed up your success rate. Now, I'm going to say this right now. You know, we're, you know, 12, 13 minutes to this podcast. Everybody is listening right now. If you have not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you subscribe because you're going to want to make sure you check out this episode along some other episodes we got coming out this summer. And also make sure you listen to this full episode because there's going to be some really juicy details to come later on. Which brings up, Chuck, I don't want to necessarily get to the train features and kind of how you've learned to hunt certain features and some of your favorite features to hunt. But before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about when you're talking the the Washita's, can you explain the difference? Like, you know, we've had guests on a few guests from like the Ozark Mountain area, and listeners have heard some of the stories and, and ideas of what that seems to be like up in the Ozarks. How are the Washita's different? And especially, maybe you can talk a little bit about the access and how you know a lot of what you're doing is coming up directly from the bottom. You're not really ever being able to drop off the top. The Washita's differ from the Ozarks quite a bit. The Ozarks are millions of years older than the Washita's, and therefore they're much more eroded on the top end, um, a lot more rounded, a lot less craggy and rough. Uh, Washita's are a lot more rocky and brushy on the top, a lot less eroded, a lot sharper. Um, Out here in the National Forest in the Washita's, I've been told that a lot of roads run the tops of ridges in the Ozarks, but 
that's not as much the case here in the Washingtons. Most of the roads that run out here in this part of the National Forest run the bottoms. And you don't have as many roads that immediately access the top of ridges. There are exceptions, but not a whole lot. Most of the exceptions are on private land, not actually out in the National Forest where it's public, you know. So how does that affect your your access being in an area like that where you're kind of limited where you have to come in from the bottom side? Well, you, you do, for the most part, usually have to come in from the bottom side, and I do that in multiple ways. Um, for one thing, I I prefer myself to hunt the north side of bridges over the south side of bridges, at least here in the Washita's, What I found, for the most part, is that the better mass crop is usually on the north side of the ridge. It retains water better. It gets less sunlight. The southern side of ridges out in this area usually tend to be a lot brushier, a lot pinier, usually don't have as much mast. And the mast that they do, do have doesn't usually put out as good a crop as as the masts on the northern side of the ridge. Most of the ridges out here run east to west, you know. And so if if I had the ability with roads in the area, and I want to hunt the north side of the ridge. And by the way, I don't always hunt the north side. That's just my preference. But if I'm going to hunt the north side and I can get away with coming over the south side of the mountain with the wind in my face in a northerly wind direction, that is what I prefer to do is to come up from the south side of the mountain. Because from my experience, the deer are usually on the north side of the mountain in the dark on lower ground feeding. And if I come up on that south side, I'm usually able to get all the way up over the top of the ridge without busting anything out and disturbing any game. If I can't do that and I just can't get over the south side of the ridge and there's no road access, then what I would try to do instead would be, you know, if the wind is, say, blowing out of the northwest, then I would try and approach the area from the northeast side of where I intend to set up and get high on the ridge up within either the top of the ridge or the top quarter of the ridge before I would do a 90 to the right, you know, and start heading to the west to approach my location so I can try and get in downwind of the deer if possible and just be as quiet as I can on the climb. So before I got some questions about pretty much everything you just said, (laughs) there's a lot to that. But one of the first things I want to ask about is a, a little more clarification on the habitat that you're hunting in because uh, you mentioned hunting that north side of the ridge, and in my experience, like so, that sounds like it's probably not as thick over there. You said the south side's more brushy. Um, are there a lot of thickets where you're at? Uh, do the deer key? Are you keying in on thickets? I mean, kind of, how does the habitat lay out as far as trees and, and cutovers and thickets or whatever you might have out there? I hunt a whole lot of different places in the mountains. In some places that I hunt, there are younger thickets some places there are older thickets some places it's just super big hardwood areas that don't have much of any thickets at all <laughs> and uh it seems just about everywhere i go there in, in these mountains out here though the majority of deer seem to want to feed on the north side and bed primarily on the south side that's what i've noticed anyway okay so then I'm assuming like when you gave the example of, let's say you've got a north wind and you're accessing from the south and you're kind of going up and over and getting on top of those deer for a morning hunt, how do right. uh, how do morning thermals play into that where 
like the thermals do rise once the sun gets up, but what about uh, before that sun gets up and you get in before daylight and those thermals are still pulling down that hill? Uh, d- right. Does that factor in for you? Yes, it does. What I try and do is either wait it out up at the top of the ridge and just scout around a little bit, you know, waiting for the, the temperature to rise. Or if I do want to pitch over the mountain, I don't go very far, usually no farther than 40 or 50 yards off the top of the ridge. And I try and stay on a high piece of ground, like above a what you would call a, a secondary ridge or a point or a finger. I try to avoid being above any type of a, a draw or uh, that, that's what I call them anyways, draws, you know, um, it's, it's my experience that usually early in the morning, like you said, the thermals, the thermals have not changed yet. And so your, your scent is going to get sucked down those draws if you're right over the top of them. And so by staying in a higher place, uh, I find that most of the deer usually tend to come up those draws, you know, not sometimes straight up the middle of the bottom of them, but more often than not, just kind of side hilling up them, you know. And so if you stay on the higher portion of the finger, you know, then usually you don't get busted when your scent is being drawn downhill. It just kind of slides right by the deer. And also, I'll say this, Chuck, uh, I actually just did an episode today when we're recording this with Bo Martonic from East Meets West podcast. And we talked, it was all about thermals. And we actually mm-hmm. talked about the this, this situation when, if you're, say, hunting this area and you're coming from the south with a north wind, especially if you're in, on a morning hunt, you're getting well before daylight. As long as there's a, a somewhat stiff wind, four, five, six, eight miles an hour, thermals are kind of neglected. I mean, I mean, or, neg- or what's, what's the right word? They're, they get overridden. Negated. 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 There you go, Chuck. Yeah. You're saving the day here on the podcast. <laughs> but so they're like ne- almost negated to the aspect that that wind current is kind of pulling. You're not having to worry about those thermals necessarily dropping back down if you have a strong enough wind that morning. Now, if that wind stops or whatever else, then, of course, thermals are going to pull uh, and start going downhill. And like you said, you don't want to be next to a draw because you're, you're, you're learning. Or what you've learned and seen is these deer travel these draws, which we're going to get into. And I think Andrew's got that written down. If not, I'm telling well, you. I'm always trying to monitor <laughs> the wind as I'm, as, as I'm traveling, no matter where I'm at in the woods. I, I stop a lot. I try not to go too fast. Obviously, the temperatures are cool during deer season most of the time. And, and I usually climb with as few clothes on as possible and pack everything else in layers, you know, to my pack or in my pack and don't fully dress until I get to a position where I'm going to sit for a long period of time, you know. And so every time I stop, I'm monitoring the wind and checking it out and seeing what it's doing. And if, you know, if I don't, if, if, if I don't like what's going on, I will modify, you know, my plan to to make something work okay and, well i've got to ask this well it, it makes sense also talking about modifying your plane like i feel like if you're gonna be an effective hunter not even a mountain hunter like you've got to be versatile you got to be able to kind of you know roll with the punches and kind of how they're being thrown at you um uh-huh. and, and sometimes i just have to throw the wind right out the door period so one thing that you brought up a little bit earlier on was the idea that hey you know this a lot of these north facing slopes of these ridges that's where a lot of the mass crop is. That's where you're finding a lot of the feeding activity. You're kind of kept, you're, you're kind of been seeing, you know, these deer kind of go off the top of the ridges. They'll go down and feed down there in the evening or in the evenings all night long. And then they'll kind of work their way back up in the morning. And they're going just so for clarification, you're seeing a lot of deer movement going up that North side of that slope over the top and then bedding on the South side of slope. Is that correct? Right. Right. Crossing the tops of ridges. And a lot of times they'll bed smack dab 
on the top of ridges. A, a lot of people don't think that they do, but I can't tell you how many large pieces of buck scat and how many large bucks I've jumped on the top of ridges, just still hunting, walking them during gun season. Um, I've jumped a lot of good bucks on bedding smack dab on the top of ridges and just tiny little, tiny little circles of, of briar thickets. You know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of cover for a buck to hide in. You, you, you can walk right by them and never even know they're there. So this kind of scenario that we've been talking about, is this something that you're seeing primarily during the rut or is this an early season thing or, or does this kind of thing you're occur all year? Bucks on top of ridges? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, more of just the these, these deer feeding on the north side and coming back over onto the south side. Uh, I'm noticing it all the way back in archery season. I mean, I, I, I hunt, I start hunting at the beginning of archery season and I, I pretty much hunt the whole season long, you know, uh, even if I tag out, I'm still going to the woods and scouting. I'm not really hunting and I'm not taking a weapon, but I'm going to be out there like I'm hunting anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I just love it that much. I love being in the woods, (laughs) but, uh, this, this is stuff that I've noticed for the whole season, basically. In in those scenarios where you're kind of coming up over on the North side of the Ridge, you mentioned that if, if the thermals are are pulling down pretty hard, that sometimes you'll kind of wait around up at the top of the ridge for things to warm up and then you'll you'll kind of crest over and get set up how long are you waiting i mean i'm assuming that that's after daylight i'm just monitoring the wind and the wind will tell me when i can when i can do it sometimes i have to wait for a couple of hours uh you know of course i'm i'm gonna hunt while i'm sitting there anyway it's probably not going to be productive but i'm just going to go ahead and I usually carry a little ground seat with me because i hunt from the ground and i'm just going to set up wherever i can whether you know, trying to keep the wind from going, my scent from going where I don't want it to go to. And I'll just sit there and, 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 you know, bide my time until the wind does what I want it to. And, uh, during the rut though, uh, a lot of times I just throw the wind right out the window and just go on down to where I'm going to go because then I'm carrying a gun and my range obviously is a whole lot farther. And a lot of times, by the time a deer has a chance to smell me, I've already got it in my sights and I'm ready to pull the trigger, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're doing that kind of, I mean, what do you like to set up on, uh, which, oh, well, we might well, say that. Yeah, hold, might on, say, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah, you're jumping ahead. Hold on. The terrain feature? Yeah, we're going oh, to get on. to it. We're going to get to it. We're going to get to yeah, it. And, uh, Andrew's jumping a little I'm far. jumping out ahead of old Jacob yes, here. Yes, so before we get to the, like, like the detailed terrain features, because you gave me some scenarios, Chuck, that I thought were fascinating, especially about the bench setup, which we're going to talk about in a, just a little bit. Um, but just kind of giving some more kind of background to the discussion here, I, I'm finding this really kind of fascinating that you're – targeting these deer specifically on that food travel pattern back to bed from that north side of the slope to the south side slope instead of like what i would assume more guys would do even myself included you know saying i would do this was maybe set up more so on that south facing slope and try to catch them even closer to the bed itself or in and around that thick cover but you're again not so worried about that you're more interested in catching them coming up that ridge have you noticed anything about like about the time of day that they come through there in the mornings compared to if you're going to hunt yes, the south side, like yes. what's kind of gotten you to this point of hunting that north facing slope right over the edge versus maybe staying closer to the bedding side? Well, from my experience, most of the deer in the areas that I'm hunting are spending quite a bit of time, you know, 
in the early hours of dawn, still down in the lower elevations, still feeding or slowly working their way up the mountain if they're not heavily pressured. You know, so a lot of times, uh, well, I would say most of the time, I don't see deer up in the elevation area that I'm hunting toward the top, I'd say top third of the ridge in most places that I hunt. I don't see most of the deer get up there until after eight o'clock in the morning. And it's not uncommon for that to be nine to 1030 in the morning before they even show up up there. They're still messing around down on the low ground, you know, so I'm always in the woods until midday waiting for those deer to to come up a lot of times you know uh, i mean it, it it pays to stay up there for a while because a lot of deer are just late coming i don't usually get a lot of early morning action and if i do it's usually younger bucks or or or, or does that i'm not really after you know do you see this exaggerated, like this movement exaggerated when you have a cool front come through, especially maybe like in October or November? Yeah, I think deer tend to move better when there's a cool front that moves through. But I think a lot of people really don't want to hunt when it's hot. And from my experience, hunting can be pretty good sometimes, even when the weather is warm. Uh, deer got to move to feed and they're going to do it whether it's hot or whether it's cold, you know. Um I guess it's just an excuse for some people to stay at home, sit on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, and see, this is the interesting aspect just because you're, let me, let me ask you this, this, this whole setup is so fascinating before we even get more into like specifics on the terrain features, uh, which I know the listeners are going to want to hear that. And probably some listeners are pissed at me because we're not already getting into it right now on their commute to work. (laughs) They're listening. Um, (laughs) But yeah, guys, you're just going to hear it when you, you know, now, you know, if you don't have a 30 minute drive to work, you're going to hear this on the way back home uh, this afternoon. But with this, Chuck, have you ever like, how did you fine tune this like setup before, like, again, focusing on the North side, like how long has it taken you to, to figure that out? And did you for a while start focusing on the South side of the slope and you slowly started working your way higher and higher up till you started dropping well, off the backside? What did that look like for you? I, I have just refined what I've done over the years through trial and error. I've tried hunting the South sides of ridges and it's just from personal observations, you know, I've, I've, I've just seen in, in, all these areas out here in the Washtaws that I hunt, that this is the case in the majority of places in the majority of the time that the cover is usually thicker on the south side and the food is usually better on the north side. And that I tend to see deer more on the north side uh, heading back to bed. And that doesn't seem to matter whether the wind is blowing from the south or blowing from the north. You know, I know a lot of people say, you know, always hunt the leeward side of ridges, but um uh, if I do hunt the south side of a ridge anymore, it's usually more toward the middle of the day, you know, hoping that the deer have already crossed the ridge and that they're comfortably bedded on the south side already. And maybe I'll catch them getting up out of their bed and going to catch a bite somewhere, you know. What about uh, when it comes to bedding where you're at? Are you seeing deer just kind of getting up in the, the thickest stuff they could possibly find? Or are you finding beds that are more visual where there may be bedding and some more open stuff and have a good look around them or well kind of what do you see when when i hunt i like to hunt really open stuff that a lot of people would probably dismiss and go you're not going to see a mature buck walk through there you know um but 
I would totally disagree with him. It's amazing how many good bucks come through open areas. It just has to have a little bit of brushy ground cover and little strips here and there that they can kind of kind of flow through. Just just a minimal amount of cover that they can, you know, weave in and out of, you know, to make them makes them a little more invisible, a little more difficult to see. They can get through an open area pretty stealthily, you know. But the reason why I like hunting the open areas is you can't shoot what you can't see and I learned early on that I don't like hunting down inside of a pine thicket where I can't hardly see 20 or 30 yards. You know, I'd rather be someplace to where if, even if I'm bow hunting, I can see that animal coming from, you know, 100 yards or more off and have time to prepare for a shot. When you think turkey calls, think of houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you can get 15 percent off of your order at houndstooth game calls by using the promo code sop24 that's sop24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chuck, I was going to say, the more and more, like, mountain hunters I've talked to, I've heard this come up a few times, like, focusing on, like, the right habitat that the the deer are going to be in, but also, like, understanding, like, if you get into, like, one of these isolated part of the mountains, where maybe there's not as much pressure higher up, uh, especially if you're having to come up from the bottom, you can find deer moving through more open stuff than you may find you know, on the flip side, if you were down by the access point where there's more guys hunting. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with pressure. You know, the uh, I, I never, I, I hunt high and hunt deep and I never encounter another hunter in, in, in an area that I hunt during the season. I never run into an, uh, a soul, not one person for the entire season, anywhere I go. And so obviously I'm hunting fairly remote areas otherwise that wouldn't be the case and i think that has a lot to do with why the deer feel secure moving through that open cover because they're not expecting anybody to be there yeah i mean that that makes perfect sense but also like you said it's got like some ground cover where there's like you know whatever kind of you know briars or whatever a green briar whatever that could be like kind of spread it like spread out that 
adds just a little bit of ground cover. It gives them something to kind of meander through. It's probably one of the better ways to kind of put it. That's what a log it is. Just just small sapling brush, you know, a little bitty hardwood scrub, little trees that that are tiny and little pockets of, like you said, green briar and things like that, you know, and they just blend right into it, you know. Of course, a lot of times, you know, that stuff – if it's along an edge, they'll use it even more, like right around the edge of a bench or, you know, something like that, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely, which we're going to get we're gonna get to the whole benches, saddles, holding on yards here in just a second. But I do want to bring one thing, which I guess kind of can lead us into the conversation on the topographical features and terrain features, is you're talking about you're seeing a lot of these deer, and specifically bucks, using drainages or draws to travel up and down in elevation and it's not you know maybe like you said that you may find them walking the bottom like right at the center of that drainage or that draw but more times than not it's off the edge of it as they're kind of coming up in elevation can you talk can you talk a little bit more details about that and again how you've kind of learned that in, in the setup of if if you're keying in on some of those draws that are coming in from maybe a high quality mass food source down lower in elevation how you may would want to set up on something like that based off if you're you know, you know, hunting during archery season or if you're out there with a muzzlet or a rifle? Right. Well, a- anytime you've got some land feature that's that's high up, whether it be a saddle or or a secondary ridge or a bench, uh, a flat, anything like that, even a land bridge, usually there's some type of a low draw wherever anything runs into a major ridge, you know, and it, it I, just from observing over the years, I've just seen countless deer come work their way up through these draws to these land features to get to them. You know, they, they don't usually tend to come straight up a finger ridge or a point right up smack dab up the middle of it. They're, they're going to dip down into the side where the draws are on one side or the other, whichever side has the wind advantage for them, you know, and slowly work their way up that away to end up on top of a bench or 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 a land bridge or or a flat or anything like that you know they're, they're going to work their way up those draws and then say a, a bench for instance i mean to me a bench is you know a, a circular triangular oblong piece of land that's jutting off to either the north or the south side of a major ridge you know and that's that's what I would refer to as a bench. You know, well, usually when you've got a bench like that, you've got a draw on either side of that bench. And I, I learned mostly not only by observation, but just also by following deer trails in the mountains when I was out scouting that every time you see that set up around a bench, you've got a trail coming up out of the draw on one side of the bench and a trail coming up out of the draw on the other side of the bench. And those round the edge of the bench on either side where it necks into the major ridge. And then they turn and they go uphill either, you know, the the one that comes up on the east side goes uphill onto the mountain and angles off to the east. The one that comes up the west side rolls around the bench, angles up, up the mountain to the west. And then usually above that, you've got a crossing trail that crosses both of those trails between the top of the ridge and that bench that parallels the mountain. And then if you look real close at any one of those trails, usually you'll also find parallel trails with all those trails that are much finer, you know, that that are the actual buck trails. 
And usually they're with, usually they're within fifty yards of the doe trail or less. Yeah, Chuck, I'm over here salivating, talking, you know, hearing about these setups. It sets up exactly like what I saw up so, in, up in the uh, Ozark National Forest. And actually, what you're talking about is is kind of similar to Rusty Johnson, who we had on this past fall. He hunts more the the Ozark National Forest and the Ozark Mountains, where he targets draws specifically, like draws and drainages is like. The number one thing he hunts, he's like, I don't even, he says he doesn't even care about really hunting a bench or a point or anything like that. It's like that draw, if you find the right draw that these bucks are using, you can have like what he would call a killing win in that situation and have an awesome opportunity to shoot a deer, whether, you know, you're, you know, using a archery equipment, using a muzzler, using a rifle. Well, I bet he sees a lot of deer, but the, the reason why I don't actually hunt the draws themselves is just because wind swirl is so bad. Uh, I've had better luck with more predictable winds hunting higher. Usually if I'm going to hunt near a draw, it would be after the thermals start to rise. And if you follow any draw up to where it, it runs into and ends on the main ridge, I would say above 80% of the time, you're going to find a trail, you know, paralleling that main ridge. And whenever it hits one of those draws, it's going to circle around the top of where that draw runs out into the main ridge. Uh, that's usually a beat down doe trail right there. Does tend to run the tops of those draws. And so that can be a really good place to hunt right there, you know, during the rut because, you know, the bucks are checking those trails, you know. And also, I I, I got to ask you this specific question because I'm thinking of like specific areas and, and draws and benches from where I was hunting uh, this past year in, in Arkansas. And I, I'll probably I have to say this, and maybe you can you can kind of you know give me your take on it. You know, not all draws and benches are created equal, as in location, what it has to offer, and why one may be a better travel path and travel uh, point for a buck than another. And when we're talking about, especially draws specifically, I know you're liking these compounding features where you have like draws in and around these benches and kind of keying in off this compounding movement. But looking at these draws, is there any specific, uh, like if give an example, like in the situation we're talking about here with these ridges running east to west, will any draw, like, you know, whether it's a cell draw or a more defined draw that just comes right up that face, is that as significant as the, I guess, the draw that would be at the corner of the main mountain and that big ridge that you're hunting on, where you have that almost like a 90-degree point there that a that, uh, big draw will make? You're talking about down at the end of a ridge? Yes, of, sir. Of a main ridge, uh, primary ridge. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, not a whole lot of difference, really. Uh, I, from my experience, hunting on the end of any major ridge is usually good hunting. Uh, there's some really good bucks that for some reason really, really like to bed on the ends of major ridges. And especially if they have splits toward the end of them, like you're talking about, that's, that's basically what I call finger ridges. You know, all the, all the secondary ridges or points that come off of a main ridge, I, I call them finger ridges. So if you hear me say that, you'll know what I'm talking about. To me, it's, it's pretty much the same thing, but I, I agree. Some benches and some draws are definitely more productive than others. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with food trees, you know, and I'm, I'm always actively seeking good food trees. You know, I'm, I'm really onto the white oaks as soon as they start dropping, you know? Yeah. And Chuck, uh, that leads in perfectly to what I was about to ask. And I'll just say right now, 
to the listeners out there, if y'all are enjoying this show, not only, like Jacob said, make your subscribe, make sure you're subscribed, but also share this with a buddy. That's a huge help to us if you just text it to a buddy or share it on social media. Be sure to do that. Uh, but my question is, well, actually, one thing I'll say before the question, it's funny uh, you mentioned the ends of major ridges because we don't have very many big mountains or anything like that here in Alabama, but we do have some. And I actually grew up hunting the very end of one of these mountains, uh, Shades Mountain. Some people know that mountain. Uh, it was private land, but uh, one of the guys in the club, actually a past guest on the show, Ben George, he had a spot where he would hunt every single year on the very end of that ridge where the ridge dumped off and the just the end of it. And he killed the crap out of some big deer there. But every year, he had so many encounters with big deer right there. Just coming up the end of the ridge, coming down the spine of the ridge to the end, crossing over. Something about just that that little hub right there on that point is, a, is an interesting thing, which I want to get into. Um, but one thing, just real quick before we get into that, is if somebody's looking at a topo map, and they're let's say they're map scouting, and we're talking about benches and draws and everything... Well, if you're looking at a mountain range, you're, there's a lot of benches and draws kind of all over the place. So what would make one stand out versus another uh, when you're kind of map scouting an area? Yeah, I think scouting with topos is good, but I don't think it's a complete scout at home, if you will, without examining aerial photos, you know, or, you know, satellite imagery along with it. Uh, looking for some type of thicker cover in the area, if you can find it. I mean, sometimes in big woods, you just can't find that. But I would tend first to look for places where there is some type of logging activity going on, you know, where you've got a, a you know, regrowing cutover, you know, a pine thicket that's either coming up to the base of the mountain or even preferably more than that, growing up onto the side of a mountain that has some type of an edge. And and then what I would look for after that point would be a good topographic, a good topographic location feature that is above that. So say a bench or a saddle that is above that what is obviously a good bedding area we we know how many deer bed in the pines you know it's it's if, if you live in the south it's just part of hunting you know <laughs> even somebody that starts late like me learns that pretty quick and so uh if you can look you know if you if you just look at topo features alone without looking at imagery it's kind of like rolling the dice. You're not getting the complete picture. You may end up wasting your time. But if I don't have access to imagery, which I didn't when I first started hunting, I would just put boot leather on the ground and just pick out a feature and go look at it and scout it as thoroughly as I could. And my first choice always would be saddles. Um, I would prefer a saddle that has more elevation rise on one side or the other of, of a main ridge. And I would take a main ridge saddle over a saddle that may be in a secondary ridge or a point. Sometimes those have saddles in them. Sometimes those have little flats or benches on them. But I'd rather have something that's actually on the main ridge would would be my first pick. Uh, The elevation of what it's at would also have a bearing on what I'm going to do because from my experience and my success in hunting mature whitetails in this area, I've had the most success between 
a thousand feet above sea level to about 1300 feet above sea level. So I'm going to look for topo features that are in that elevation range on the side of the main ridge. Oh man, Chuck, you just dropped so much information there that I just, me and Andrew are just, we're just squirming. Hey, listen, if this is a video podcast, you would have seen us squirming and just like smiling <laughs> and just like fist bumping each other. Cause this is like, this is what we call uh, in the podcast world. We call this a banger episode. This is, oh, this, yeah, a, I'm fired this up. is a great episode so far. Chuck, I just got to put that out there right now. Uh, hopefully the listeners are as excited as we are so far. Chuck, you mentioned a few things right there that I'm super interested in getting in more detail with. Um, and then we're going to come back to, cause I still want to get to what Andrew had a question on about some of these, the ends of these main ridge systems and bucks traveling it and, and being a, an interesting year to ridge catch a points. big buck. Yeah. The ridge point. Sorry. Um, but going back to what you were saying specifically about the, uh, saddles when it comes to like saddles and, uh, again, like your favorites, you're talking about, you know, a saddle on a main ridge system is at a higher, um, it, you hold in higher regards as something on a secondary ridge point coming off that main ridge. And then also another factor you had mentioned is you really like saddles where you have on one side of the saddle is a higher elevation point than the other side of the saddle. Can you explain that? Like what is your take there and how do you see that differing when it comes to like deer movement compared to the one that it's, it's close to even on each side of the saddle? Well, I don't know that I said that. You may have misunderstood me. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that one side has to be higher than another. I'm just saying that I like a large elevation difference between the, the bottom of the saddle itself and the high point on either side of the saddle. I think the more that the saddle is accentuated, the more it's going to funnel deer movement because it's going to narrow down that saddle and make it a lot smaller space. You know, if there's not a lot of elevation change, then it tends to make the saddle a lot longer. You know, the saddle could cover a quarter of a mile instead of, you know, a hundred yards. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wasn't tracking originally. It's a tighter choke point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That makes way more sense then. So you're, you're wanting more, I guess you could call it an exaggerated saddle where you an have... An exaggerated saddle, an exaggerated choke point or funnel. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, can you just talk, can you just mention for the listeners, you know, we've had other guests on talked about saddles, but I want to kind of get your take on it. What is, how have you seen deer move, specifically mature bucks in and around those saddles when it's, you know, on a main ridge system? How do you expect yeah. them to move and how do you set up if you're going to hunt an area like that? Well, First of all, I, I, I prefer to have another topographic feature close to the saddle, like a bench, okay? And if, if there is a bench, it would usually be off the side of the main ridge, either on the north or the south side, and usually at a slightly lower elevation than the saddle. And if you can find one that's close within you know a quarter of a mile or so of that saddle, then that is really where I would prefer to hunt. It's kind of... Okay, one good topographic feature is good, but two put together is even better than one. Does that make any sense? Hundred percent. We're compounding features. Uh, yeah, we call that. Everyone, go back and listen to episode one forty one. Josh Driver. <laughs> compounding features. Yeah. Somebody else likes this too, huh? <laughs> oh, a big time. Oh yeah. So if if I have a choice, I would prefer to hunt a bench above a bench. Actually, that's between that saddle and that bench, but I would actually be overlooking the bench because from my experience, the deer tend to, you know, not go through the middle of the saddle. 
they will either, depending upon which direction the wind is blowing, they'll either come in slightly, like I said, if the ridge is running east and west, they'll come in either slightly on the east side of the saddle or they'll come in slightly on the west side of the saddle and kind of circle through the saddle. And if that bench is down at a slightly lower elevation, they'll usually truck right over to that bench and use that land feature as well when they cross the mountain because it makes it easier for them to go up and down. And so you'll usually find a, a nice doe trail right in there. This is so fascinating. I'm going to put it out there. I'm so excited to go back to Arkansas this year. I'm so excited. This, this, this. Uh, listen, Chuck. If if I kill a good deer in in the mountains this year, I guarantee this episode is going to going to be playing a factor for me, without a doubt. Uh, well, I hope I hope it helps. I hope uh, I, I already know it is. I mean, you're you're mentioning things that I'm kind of now rethinking and kind of. I've always got the the topo and uh, slope angle shading map burned into my mind of this one area. Uh, so <laughs> I think that a lot of this would apply to mountains in just about any area. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I've never hunted the Ozarks, but I'm, I'm sure that people that hunt in the Ozarks find a lot of the same stuff that I do. Like you said, absolutely. It's like you said, you know, the Ozark mountains are more, you know, there are some areas that are fairly, or like really, are super rough, but a lot of it's more kind of gentle rolling tops to those ridges. Um, so one thing I have noticed there is finding a lot more, um, I guess you could say more exact. Not, not they're not as exaggerated saddles on top of those ridges. Uh, like you said, they're they're a little they're wider. Um, just because I guess the way it's kind of deteriorated, I guess they've been eroded away. Absolutely. So that is one factor. But there are some super interesting benches in the area that we had hunted uh, that have like compounding beach benches, which I, I'm actually. I know you use hunt stand, and I'm gonna have to like send you a, a pin uh, on uh, Google Maps or something to look at an area that you can pull up on, or some coordinates to look at, because I have an area that I hunted last year where it's almost like you have that that bench over a bench, kind of like what you're talking about with a couple of drainages that come up from this huge creek bottom, and uh, it was one of those areas I just decided never to really go down into. I hunted on top of the on top of the first bench and and called in two really nice buck or one really nice buck and the other buck was you know a little smaller than what I would want to shoot. But that was on the muzzleloader uh, opener uh, up there. And uh, just unfortunately didn't get a shot because, you know, he caught me. He busted me while I was up in the tree, which brings up a question I wanted to get to. And actually, now I'm thinking about this. There's, there's a lot more <laughs> questions I have. I almost almost think we ought to make two episodes out of this. Yeah, yeah. Andrew's over here. Okay. All right. All right. Listeners not, might not be happy. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. So, Chuck, one, one question I want to ask you, which is something that Andrew had brought back a little bit earlier, was – the idea of like how some of these big mature bucks will use the end of these main ridge points uh, for potential, like you said, bedding and also travel. Have you noticed any patterns there that make it where, you, you know, that could be a, an effective place to hunt uh, to kind of catch one of these big bucks cruising and moving through? Yeah, of course. Once again, it, it, it goes back to burning boot leather and finding sign, but uh, I find it real common, like you were talking about earlier, where the end of a ridge sometimes splits and you have kind of a secondary point that runs off of the main ridge. A lot of times bucks will either bed on, you know, not far from that, not far down from that split, either on the main ridge or on the secondary point that's coming off of it, where they can see downhill for a long, long ways down into that draw. It's a really common place for bucks to bed in the mountains is on those points where they can really see downhill for a long ways. Um, I think I think that they probably like to have the wind at their back, you know, to where they don't have to worry about 
anything coming up on their backside because they can smell it. But at the same time, they're visually looking downhill and using their eyes at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it, it brings a question that I, w- I want to kind of ask you is, how have you noticed if you when you've walked up on bucks and you've actually laid eyes on bucks that have been better that you jump up or whatever, have you noticed any pattern with you know, wind conditions in where they set up for their beds. Uh, have you have you seen any correlation between bedding location and wind direction that you can say? All I can tell you for sure is that as soon as you make a hard, fast rule, they're going to break it. <laughs> 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 There's going to be exceptions to every rule that you make. But I think that I, I personally feel that the majority of the time, from my experience, when I'm jumping them, they're usually – Usually when I jump them, they've got the wind at their backside or quartering on their backside, and they're looking kind of downwind. Inter- okay, interesting. That, that's what I wanted to kind of get to and see if that was the factor you've seen there. It's, it's kind of like this. It, to me, it seems like the same situation that, you know, a lot of times when you're near like a major river, you'll find a lot of deer that will bed right along the edge of water, you know, in, in little thick areas of growth and i think it's because they feel secure because it's that water is one side that they know they don't have to worry about any potential danger coming from it's just it's just one one less care that they have to be concerned about same reason a lot of bucks like to bed i think you know with a bluff at their backside or a big rock formation at their backside or a huge fallen tree or something like that it's just it makes it really hard for anything to get up on the backside of them. And it's just one direction that they don't have to worry about danger coming from. And I think the more directions that they can feel insurance on, the more secure they feel. I know I would feel the same way. Chuck, I want to ask you this. One thing you, we've mentioned a couple times in the podcast, but we've never explained why. Can you talk about, you know, your switch when you went from being like a tree stand hunter to being a ground hunter and the learning curve there, but now you may see it as in certain situations an advantage over a guy that might be lugging around a tree stand? Well, it's, 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 to me, it's a lot more low impact. I mean, the reason why I got away from it was quite obviously, uh, for me, it was, it was due to age and health. You know, I, I, I just started realizing that I'm not as young as I would like to be anymore, and that if if I were to in the mountains have any kind of a a health issue, a, you know, a heat stroke or or anything like that, I might be able to pop an aspirin that I've got in my pack and possibly crawl out. Whereas if I was in a tree stand, somebody would probably find me dead hanging from my safety strap. You know, <laughs> and the thought of that wasn't too pleasant. So uh, I decided it was time for me to just relearn how to hunt from the ground and and make the best of it and i knew that there would be a learning curve involved you know but turns out i've had really good luck hunting from the ground and i think it's probably not as critical in the mountains as it is in other areas uh i don't know anybody other than myself that spends a lot of time in the mountains hunting on the ground everybody seems to hunt out of lean twos or climbers or but I'm always trying to get above whatever sign I'm hunting and hunting down, you know, shooting downhill from that area. So I'm already above any animal anyway. So it's kind of like I'm using the mountain 
as an actual tree stand is really the way I look at it. And, and to me, that makes a ton of sense when you think about you're a lot like it sounds like probably 90 percent of the time you're coming over that south side of that ridge over to the north side and then setting up kind of around that top third of what you you know is what we've talked about so far uh and exactly kind of, and using it to your advantage and it just it makes more, more way more sense like yeah if you're hunting from the top looking down it, like why get in a tree stand i mean i mean I, it's it's always i don't know i feel kind of more comfortable up there sometimes like oh man i, I kind of feel like i'm out of the eyesight potentially of some some animals um, well, even, even if there was a pine thicket ending on the mountain, you know, uh, which which is a great edge, you know, that's that's another fantastic feature to look for in aerial photos is, is you know, fingers that are coming up out of a pine thicket that ends edgewise on the side of a major ridge. That's always an excellent place to hunt. And you're probably going to find more than one tree stand in an area like that that's already set up a permanent lean to or something, you know, that somebody's drug in. But um, you, you've already got a height advantage, like I say, and it, even if you were hunting a pine edge like that, once you're back off from that, you know, 50 yards or so higher in elevation, even if you were in a tree stand, it's not going to make that much difference into how well you can see down in it unless you're just right on the edge of that pine. Does that make sense? No, it, it does. It brings up another question I have about when you're hunting off the ground. How do you like to set up when you're hunting off the ground, whether, you know, it's an archery season, whether it's muzzler, whether there's rifle, and, you know, are you using a chair? Or are you leaning up against a tree, cover? Like, wh- how do you want to set up on the ground if you can kind of have, like, that perfect scenario? It varies whether I'm hunting with a bow or whether I'm hunting with a, a rifle or a gun. Yeah, um, I use a little turkey lounger, a fold-out turkey lounger seat, which is kind of just like like a regular camp lounge seat, but with really short legs. You know what I'm talking. And uh, I, you know, they weigh about five pounds. They're pretty easy to carry around the woods compared to a tree stand, especially for somebody my age. And uh, anyhow, I carry that with me everywhere I go, and I try and find a really, really large tree. Whether it be an oak or whether it be a pine, like I said, if it's above a bench or something like that on a steeper incline, if there's a large tree like that, then usually just nature from erosion will build up kind of a flat spot behind that tree. And if I'm hunting with a muzzleloader or with a rifle, I'll try and smooth that out a little bit during the preseason when I'm scouting if I know it's a location I'm going to want to hunt. I'll try and smooth that out, you know, dig out some of the rocks, you know, just flatten the ground up and accentuate it even a little more to where there's not as much incline as the surrounding area. And therefore, when I set that lounger there, it sits a lot more level. And then I will lean my gun right in between my legs into the back of the tree to where I I can just look around the right side of the tree or look around the left side of the tree. And the tree is wider than my body. So I'm basically hidden and I'm using cover to my advantage. I'm expecting the deer to come out underneath me on this topographic feature, like a bench or a flat or something. And so I've got something between me and the animal that gives me a chance to get that gun around one side of the tree or the other, you know, and, and if I need to use that tree as a rest to steady a longer shot. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Now with a bow, with a bow, I would prefer actually usually not to even set up on a tree. Uh, with a bow, if I'm up on an incline, I will look for a blowdown in the area or or a little brushy 
spot, you know, and trim myself a little bitty opening that I can shoot through and, and then just try and make myself a little flat spot in the side of the hill right there that, you know, to, so that the seat won't be at such an uncomfortable incline. And then, uh, well, I got away from compounds uh, when I started ground hunting and went to crossbows because it involves, you know, so much less movement. It's a lot easier to not be busted. And so, I, you know, I've, I've already got an arrow, you know, cocked and locked in the crossbow. And I just basically, you know, lay it up on my knees. And then if it, I'm leaning way back at, a, at an angle in the seat because it has a backrest in it. And so basically I can move my knees up or down and, and steady the crossbow with my knees to where I'm, I'm not. I'm not shaky or anything, and I can get a completely steady, accurate shot out to 50 yards. What do you see as uh, when when you've gone from again ground hunting versus you know what you're doing with the tree stand? With that learning curve, did you see like have you seen any potential advantage at least with your style of hunting and how you hunt doing that style um, compared like what you have been doing previously? Compared to a tree stand, is there any advantage? Uh, like I said, it's, uh, you know, the mountains kind of makes it an advantage. You know, it's, it's hard hauling a good climber that weighs, you know, 20 pounds or a little less than 20 pounds up and down a mountain. And I've actually had some tree stands stolen over the years by leaving them in the woods, you know, and, and I'm not too happy when that happens. (laughs) So. I always got to the point where I was carrying the climber in and out with me, and that gets old pretty quick, hauling that thing up and down and up and down and up and down the mountain. And it's also, no matter, it seems like no matter how quiet you try to nest it up, it's always going to clang on something. It's always going to make metallic sounds. That little bitty chair hanging on my side, part of it, you know, the legs are made out of metal, but I wrap it in camo tape to try and damp the sound down so it doesn't sound metallic if it rubs or brushes against anything. And it also blends in a lot better if you wrap it in camo tape, you know, and don't leave any of that bare metal. And so it's it's a lot more low impact. It's a lot quieter. Plus, it doesn't, you know, it takes time to, to find a good tree and to get a stand set up on it and to actually climb and then pull your weapon up into the tree. It takes time to get out of that situation. And so by just carrying a little ground seat, you've got a whole lot more time to hunt. It's a lot quieter. It's a lot quicker. It, it, to me, it just, it, I don't know, it just seems sensible, you know. It works for me. Now, Chuck, I, I just was looking at some notes that we had taken down a little earlier in the conversation. Now, I can't believe I missed this. I brought it up when it came to betting, if you've seen any kind of correlation with wind direction. But have you seen anything – you might have mentioned this earlier and that I just maybe had missed in, in a little bit of detail. Have you seen any pattern with bucks moving with any kind of wind advantage at all up in the mountains? Yes, definitely. Uh, I had one a few years ago that was really good at busting me out down below a bench. and. Uh, he was he was just taking advantage of morning thermals, and uh, unfortunately he was he was a buck that didn't move like every other buck in the area, and he would completely cross the whole bottom of that bench just out of sight, just below the top of the bench, and wind check it before he would come up there, and so every time he came through that area, and and uh, 
it was before the thermals had started to rise uphill. He would bust me every time, every time he would come in downwind of that bench. And he was using thermals to his advantage, definitely. And another thing I was going to say while I'm thinking about it, not to try and get off and change the subject, but uh, also about hunting on, on from the ground in a chair is I've had so many deer walk within just five yards of me, you know, upwind, and they don't have a clue what I am. It's like they don't recognize your human shape when you're sitting down that low to the ground in a chair. They don't recognize you as being a, a human if you've got gloves and a face net on and hunting from the ground i try and always have gloves and a head net on that's i've heard i've heard that before yeah i've heard i've heard other people say the same thing and i've personally done it too to sit on the ground and it's like especially like some of the does they just you know they might give you the old head bob every now and then but they'll kind of you know be walking and kind of keep an eye on that thing where they give you the head bomb and then they kind of start looking away and then they snap their head back real quick they're trying to catch you but as long as as you don't move and they can't smell you they just kind of do their own thing and they kind of like you know wander off um so exactly and, and and i've had mature bucks do that too not just not just does and young bucks you know even wearing orange but i will say that when i do wear orange and i always have orange on during a gun season i i usually have orange with a breakup pattern in it it's not solid orange i think you're much more likely to be busted wearing that solid color because there's it doesn't look like there's any kind of background in it you know, it's such a big blob of one color. They can't see orange, but they still see it's a big blob of, it looks out of place to them. So you're much more likely, I think, to get busted wearing solid orange than you are orange with a pattern in it. And fortunately in Arkansas, it's legal to wear orange with a pattern in it. Now, I want to kind of get back to this, you know, bucks traveling with the wind advantage. You get that example with that one buck that would, you know, consistently, you know, use those thermals to his advantage and kind of go below that bench and scent check and bust you a few times there you know what else have you seen especially with these bucks that are using these draws for travel and the saddles and the benches like what else have you kind of noticed as in you know any kind of wind advantage and how do you maybe you know placate that or play off that for yourself when you're trying to figure out these setups well like i said you know in in the mornings when thermals start coming up they seem to want to come up with the thermals in elevation and they start traveling uphill. So they're using those thermals below them to their advantage to smell everything in the area. And they're definitely using that. I've seen it a million times, even without pressure in the area, even early in the season, they will still, you know, once the weather starts cooling off, start following those thermals uphill. Once they start just hearing traffic in the area, even if they aren't being pressured in the woods, you know, people are just out scouting, driving around on the back roads. And they, they hear that and they definitely notice it just like turkeys and other game does bear. And anyhow, um, so they, they start using those thermals to their advantage and just by being up above them early, you know, and trying to get off their, off their wind, like I was explaining earlier, to where I'm not directly above them when they're coming until those thermals change and start coming uphill. But from my experience, a lot of times they don't start heading up to uphill until those thermals start changing direction. And that's why they're not usually up there early in the morning. It's usually later. I'm not sure if that's because they're milling around with the does down below and, and showing interest in them or whether it's actually that they're waiting for the thermals to change and then going uphill. I mean, it could be a combination of both. Um, but I'm trying to get above those deer, you know, and, and take that advantage away from them. They're smelling downhill 
you know, what's coming up. And so I'm trying to be over the top of them before they get up there. And that's why I really prefer to come from the opposite side of the mountain because they're usually not there in the dark and I can get all the way over the top and wait as long as I need to, to try and play the thermals and be above them so that they can't use that against me. Uh, in a lot of these situations where the bucks are trying to use either thermals or wind to their advantage, let's say wind because uh, it's it's more simple, I guess. Uh, do you ever see them, you know, having it quartering to them, quartering away from them, or is it always kind of like right in their face? I mean, can you explain a little bit more what it looks like when they're actually using the wind? I think I've seen more deer quartering away from the wind than any other movement pattern, but I've seen them do just about everything. It just seems that they do that more than anything else, quarter away from the wind. So, Chuck, I, I want to kind of talk about on the scouting aspect. You know, we've talked a lot about the hunting, but I want to know, you know, you and me have had a conversation before about how much time you put in scouting, not only just running trail cameras, but covering a lot of ground. Then you you specifically told me that you're always trying to look for the next best area to hunt when it comes to finding a big mature buck like what you're targeting and not getting stuck in the ways of hunting the same area over and over again. A lot of the reason why I'm doing that is because I, I like to have what I kind of call or refer to as throwaway areas. To me, a throwaway area is, you know, I, I have what I would consider already to be what I would call my honey holes. Okay. There are places that I know that I can go to from experience every year and get a good mature buck. If I just sit on that area for several days in a row, because it's been my experience that a lot of these mountain deer, they travel quite a long ways up and down ridges. And sometimes they won't appear in the same area, especially the really mature ones won't appear in the same area for days upon end so if there's any way you know that i can during gun season i would like to be able to sit one of my honey holes for at least a minimum of three or four days straight in a row and if i do that i know that i'm going to get a chance at a shooter buck you know i i I have that much confidence in those areas and those are what i consider my honey holes but i hate to introduce scent any more than I have to in my honey holes before gun season comes around, if that makes any sense to you, because I I have a whole lot of faith in the rut. I've seen so many instances where during the rut, deer that live miles down the ridge, probably, or on an adjacent ridge will suddenly show up in front of your trail cameras that are just not bucks that live in your area. And a lot of times they dwarf the deer that you've been catching in your area. And so a lot of times it seems to me that your best chance for a really outsized buck is when they let their guard down during the rut. And so I want to save those primo areas for that period of time. Plus I'm using a gun. So I've got extensive range, you know, or excuse me, extended range so that I can reach out and touch something a little bit farther. If it does get into my, you know, scent path or whatever, I can, I can take it out before most of the time before it has a chance to truly react to me. And so uh, these throwaway areas that I like to find, I like to scout not only during the season, but especially during the off season and just investigate new areas. 
I'll spend most of my time investigating and scouting maps, topos, aerials, satellite imagery, just looking for repeatable situations. I'll, you know, I'll find a topographical setup or a a combination of satellite imagery and topo setup and try and find that. And, you know, I'll, I'll find it in another area that looks similar. And then if I find that, then I'll go to that area and I'll scout that area in hopes that it will turn out to be as productive as the area that I already have that's a honey hole. And the reason why I would call it a throwaway area is because I haven't really spent any time hunting there. And so my priority for that area would be the coming season. That's a, a chance for me to get out and archery hunt in an area that I don't have a lot of experience in. And so while I'm in there archery hunting, when I when my hunt stops or slows down at midday, then I can go scout the land a little bit farther and get it get to know it even more intimately. And if I don't have any luck there or I burn the area out from hunting it too many days in a row, I don't feel like I've lost anything big because I still have areas that I know are going to be productive once gun season or muzzleloader season comes around because I haven't set foot in those areas. Does that make sense to you? It does. And Chuck, after talking about this, we talked about extending this episode. Actually, I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna do a, the the listeners a little dirty here. We're actually gonna get to a point of kind of wrapping this episode up here because. What we've kind of decided to do, I want to get you on in about a week and a half when Andrew, Andrew comes back from this vacation, and I want to dive in very specifically on the scouting, these throwaway areas, and how guys can use that that mindset to become more and more successful as building knowledge and a wider range of knowledge in a big general area. Um, because- well, yeah, because my, my, my whole game is, you know, like I said, I started late, so I'm trying, you know, I have been constantly trying as you know, as rapidly as possible to get on par with other people that, that I know that are good hunters. You know, I'm trying to make up for lost time. So I'm trying to be as learn what I need to quickly to be consistently repeatable from year to year to year. Every year I want that good buck. I don't want to go a year without getting a good buck. Plus I'm a weekend warrior too. And so scouting is really, really important you know, I burn up a whole lot of boot leather looking around, but it pays dividends, definitely, because I don't have as much time to hunt as I would like to. And so I've, I've got to take full advantage of it. So the more scouting I do, the more I up my odds for success. And, and with that being said, guys, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast because you're not going to want to miss the second part episode uh, with Chuck as we kind of break down that aspect because I'm very excited to talk to you, Chuck, in a week or so about the idea of how you go about scouting and truly breaking these areas down and building that profile on a property to figure out how you can become more successful, use the throwaway areas and so many other factors. And also, I'll put this out there for the listeners. When you listen to this episode, if you have questions that maybe you'd want us to ask Chuck specifically on the scouting aspect or even some of this episode or even some questions from this specific episode, leave us a uh, written review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or you can shoot us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or of course you can shoot us an email as well. And let us know what questions you have, and maybe we can kind of go over some of those questions with you, Chuck, when we get back on here. Uh, and, that would and ha- be wonderful, because if I can help anybody, I would love to help anybody. I'll trade any information that I have, and 
willingly, uh, I wish I would have had more help from people when I started. So if I could be helpful to people and save a lot of time, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Everything should be shared. Well, Chuck, we appreciate guys like yourself that are willing to share that information because it's, it's hard learned information that you've learned that kind of gets you to this point. And that's the one reason why we kind of started this podcast is because, you know, me and Andrew being in our mid-20s, we still have so much to learn. And that's why we like interviewing guys like yourself because we're just like the listeners. We're on this, we're all on this path together on trying to learn the most we can from guys that have way more experience. Because again, you've been hunting longer than me and Andrew's been alive. So you I'm ha- still on the path. Absolutely. I'm still on the path. <laughs> but it, it's all about finding that path and, and figuring out what works for each individual person. But again, Chuck, you're a wealth of knowledge. We greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast and very excited to talk to you in the very near future uh, in more details about some of these specific topics. So, guys, Again, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on either uh, Spotify, which you can leave five-star reviews there, or you can go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes if you're an iPhone user. Greatly appreciate y'all's support. We appreciate that feedback. And, guys, make sure you tune in to this Friday's episode of the outro because you're going to want to hear us break down this episode because there is a lot of things to talk about when it comes to this first episode with Chuck. So, Chuck, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we'll talk to you very soon. Thank you, Andrew and Jacob. It's a pleasure talking with you, and y'all definitely need to listen to this show because it's very educational. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right, giving you a heads up here, so go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the... The, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.